Hello, this is the Schwepp. I'm Earl Fontenelle, and today we are speaking with Korshi Dosu, research associate at the University of Würzburg, and a man who knows a thing or two about Egyptian religion, uh, what we might call Egyptian magic, and specifically the subject of today's interview, the Greek magical pyre. So, Korshi, thank you very much for taking the time to speak to us. Um, well, thank you very much for having me. I'm a big fan of the show, so it's nice to um, be able to be a guest speaker. So, the PGM. So, we esotericism magic nerds know this set of documents as PGM, which stands for Papyri Graiki Magiki, the Greek magical yep. papyri. What is this as a corpus? What is this body of texts? What's its basic history? How do we come to know a huge amount of different papyri under the title PGM? So, um, so I mean, these are essentially papyrus editions of just under 100 texts. Um, they were put together by uh, Karl Preisendanz as the editor um, in the late 1920s and early 1930s. Um, the texts themselves um, were found in Egypt, obviously. They're papyri, so almost all of our papyri were found in Egypt. Um, and the kind of it's part of the history of papyrology, essentially, uh, the history of their discovery. So we have Napoleon's invasion at the end of the 18th century, um, which kind of opens up the interest of collectors in Europe and America um, in Egyptian artifacts. Um, shortly afterwards, we have uh, Muhammad Ali um, becomes the ruler of Egypt, and he's interested in kind of modernizing Egypt. Um, and as part of that, he invites uh, more foreigners into Egypt, and he also increases um, the amount of agricultural production. And this has an interesting side effect in that when um, Egyptian farmers are hunting for fertilizer, which is quite often found in old archaeological sites where you've had kind of organic matter like mud bricks breaking down, um, while they're digging for this fertilizer, they also find um, papyri at the same time. And so you have multiple processes going on. You have deliberate excavations. You have um, the looting of ar archaeological sites by treasure hunters. Then you have farmers accidentally finding things. And all of these papyri are kind, and also other artifacts, of course, um, are appearing on the market um, in the early 19th century. Um, and so a big bunch of them were sold from the 1820s onwards to a Greek collector whose name is usually given in its French form, Jean d'Anastasie, who was a very prominent figure in Alexandria. We purchased thousands of Egyptian antiquities of all different kinds, of all different periods, um, you know, coffins, um, New Kingdom, Middle Kingdom papyri. And among the things that he purchased were 10 magical and alchemical papyri, um, which were then split up, sold to various collections, principally in France, Germany and England. And um, so these are the kind of the largest magical papyri that we have. The Great Magical Papyrus of Paris, PGM-4, the London Leiden Demotic Magical Papyrus, PGM-14. Um, and then there were other later acquisitions. So, for example, in the 1890s, um, Wallace Budge, the famous Egyptologist, um, was traveling around Mesopotamia and Egypt. Uh, and under fairly questionable circumstances, he acquired a bunch of artifacts, among them uh, human skulls, but also magical papyri, um, which end up in the British Museum. And then um, there are also the big excavations. So in the 1890s, again, you have the Oxyrhynchus excavations, Grenfell and Hunter basically digging through these rubbish dumps in the old city of Oxyrhynchus in Middle Egypt, and they find about a quarter of a million papyri in all, um, including many magical texts. And then there are a few others purchased. Uh, there's a large one, PGM 36, purchased in the Fayum, which has lots of very strange images in it. It's quite a famous papyrus. If you Google magical papyrus, it's probably one of the first images you'll find. Um, and that was sold, um, I think, in 1920. Um, then there have been few finds since then, but by kind of 1920, all of the big papyri that we know now had been found. 
Um, and so basically a bunch of German scholars in the early 1900s had this idea to publish them as a collection, as had already been done with the curse tablets. This was kind of disrupted a bit by the First World War, in which two of the key collaborators died, among them Richard Wunsch, who was one of the publishers of the earlier curse tablets. But Karl Preisendance took over, and he published the first volume in 1928, um, second volume in 1931. Third volume was destroyed during the bombing of um, Leipzig, I think, where it was being printed. And then uh, parts of it were reincorporated into a republication of the second volume in the 1970s. So that's a bit of probably too much information, I suppose, about the history of its publication. I love it. it was no, then it's great. It's, it's it the was... story. You know, we love, we love stories <laughs> that lie behind influential texts. The one last thing I was going to say, though, it's also quite important to remember that the English edition was published in the 1980s and then republished in the early 90s by Hans-Dieter Betts. So most people now are familiar with the Magical Papyri through their English translation, which is important because that also includes a large number of demotic texts, which were added by Janet Johnson. So the Greek texts were often um, written alongside texts in demotic, which is a late phase of the Egyptian language, and Prize and Dance completely ignored them. So quite often you had like floating texts in Greek, which seemed to have no instructions, for example, um, but that was because the instructions were in demotic. So Janet Johnson, in the Betts translation, she actually put the demotic back in and um, recontextualized um, the papyri in a lot of ways. So so you really want to go for the, the Greek magical papyri in translation, if for no other reason, even assuming your German is superb and you can read fluent Greek, you've got the demotic material added in, right? Yes, that's good to have them kind of both there. There are some problems with the, both the English and the German edition, um, which I probably don't need to go into now. But, uh, I mean, so if you have access to the original language, it's always good to check in the original language. But if you don't, then the best edition is, you know, pretty good. All right. Thank you very much for that. So, so this guy, Preisendance, if we can just get a picture of what he's doing, is he basically going around big public and also private library collections all over Europe and making copies of these papyri to assemble his edition? Is he, is he basically getting on the train and going to Paris, going to Oxford and so on, and just reading papyri, transcribing them, and then assembling a big volume? Uh, it's a good question. So I'm not sure exactly what process he used. I mean, a lot of these papyri had already been published. So, for example, the first one to be published was by a guy with the surname Goodwin. I think it's William Goodwin um, in the 1840s. So he published um, one called PGM-5, a little handbook um, in London, which is held in the British Library now. So he published that in the 1840s, and there were other publications in German and French um, over the 19th century. So kind of what Dance was doing was really gathering all of these together in one place, um, and also, I guess, retranslating shorter parts which hadn't, or shorter texts which had been ignored in the past. And he had a bunch of collaborators, so he didn't do it alone, even though his name was attached to it. My impression is that they were probably not always traveling themselves. I think quite often they were using photographs. Um, so back in those days, it was possible to get relatively high quality black and white photographs of texts um, sent to you. Right. That's fantastic. Thank you so much for that. I, I love that kind of stuff, the story of documents. Now, we want to talk about what's in these wonderful texts. But before we do that, I wonder if we could talk a little bit about the term magic, because mm. as we've noted it before on this podcast, it's never unproblematic to talk about magic. It's just a loaded term, I would say. Are you happy to use the term magic in your own work? Uh, yeah, so personally, I do use the term magic. I've been on a bit of a journey with this term. So when I first started studying it, I did kind of take in all the critiques of the term magic and I stopped using it for a while. Um, but I've come to accept it probably as a useful uh, etic and perhaps even in some cases emic term to use for these kinds of these kinds of practices and texts. So what does it mean? 
for the purposes of our discussion. The way that paparologists really define magical papyri um, or ma other magical objects is not kind of by going to a big theoretical model, um, you know, like a Fraserian, you know, what kind of attitude this has to the gods or um, what is the social position of these texts or, you know, something like that. They tend to look at, I guess, kind of material and content features. And so those are the kind of criteria I tend to use, you know, a kind of loose set of criteria um, for defining a text as, as maybe magical. Um, so in terms of form of the texts, quite often they will include things like voces magicae. So these are kind of like abracadabra words, um, like abrasax or abaramenthoth or um, yo sit, yo pakarbeth. So these kind of words which don't really make any sense in Greek or whichever language they're written in, but seem to have a kind of magical power. You've got kind of characteras, which are these kind of strange magical signs, which are probably meant to write a divine language. You've got, in terms of language, you've got certain verbal forms, so things like um, performative inv invocations, so things like I invoke you, um, Hermes, or I adjure you, the headless god. So these kinds of kind of fixed phrases which appear in a lot of magical texts. Um, there's also certain terminology. So within these texts as a genre, if we can talk about a genre of magic, there's certain recurrent terminology for types of practices. So things like autoptos, which refers to a direct vision of a god, um, Oneropompos, which refers to a ritual to send a dream to somebody. Patadesmos, which is a binding spell. Um, Fimotokon, which is a silencing spell. So there's these kind of terminology. There's also things like, um, for example, uh, recipe books will include um, spaces for you to insert the name of this person who an amulet is created for or who a curse is targeting. And if you have a physical amulet or a curse tablet or a curse papyrus, these will then have the people's names inserted. So it's those kinds of I guess, uh, material and textual features that people look for uh, when they're identifying something as being magical and also um, in terms of content, certain ritual types that we t tend to see recurring. So things like curses, divination practices, or at least certain divination practices, certain kinds of healing practices and the creation of amulets. And there's a kind of overlap between these practices and the papyri in which they appear. So for example, a papyrus with a curse will very often also have certain types of healing practices or certain kinds of divinatory practices alongside it. And so that's why I think that we are justified in speaking uh, loosely, at least, of a kind of genre of magical text, um, which we find in the papyri. Lovely. Um, I'll go with that. It's at least we know what we're talking about. You know, we don't we can sidestep the whole vast what is magic debate, what is religion debate and just say, well, we're looking at these kinds of texts. And this is the sort of stuff exactly. I mean, if we're trying to do comparative work, then it's more important to try to define what magic means cross culturally. But if we're just talking about a corpus of texts which are conventionally called magic, then we can, I guess, at least um, observe the shared features that they display. Nice. Now, before we get into what's in the texts, I wonder if we can just say what we know, which may or may not be very much, about what cultural space these texts might have inhabited in Egyptian society. In other words, could you go to the marketplace and buy one of these texts? Do these Are these texts found in tombs? Are they buried with people? What were these texts used for? Do we know anything about this? So that's, I mean, it's an incredibly difficult question. The, because of the kind of processes which I mentioned at the beginning of this um, interview of how they were collected, it was usually in informal excavations uh, and uncontrolled excavations. So very often these would show up in the marketplace. There'd be no indication of where they came from. So, for example, the Theban Magical Library, which is the largest collection of, of magical texts from the ancient world, we know nothing about where it came from. A lot of authors will say it came from a tomb, for example, but that's pure speculation, um, at least as far as I'm aware. I don't think there's any documented information from the sellers saying where it came from. 
So a lot of it is us trying to guess and reconstruct things. Um, my impression is that these would probably not be widely available in the marketplace. I don't know, maybe there's a reference I haven't encountered, but I haven't seen any mentions of people buying them um, at a marketplace. The one text we do have that kind of discusses the circulation of magical texts is a letter from uh, 4th century Kellis in the Dakhla Oasis. Um, and it's quite well known for that reason because it's the only text of its type. And it talks, it's basically a letter that somebody has sent to somebody else where they've said, you asked me for um, a certain text and I couldn't find it. But here's another one I found, and then it contains a separation spell, so a magical spell to separate two people who are in love or who have a kind of relationship with each other. And so this implies that perhaps one of the processes by which these texts circulated is by people excerpting them from larger collections and then sending them to one another or perhaps copying them themselves. Um, and there's some evidence of this in the texts themselves. So in the texts, there's often multiple versions um, of rituals next to each other, as if they're kind of trying to compare two versions which they have. The epistolary format also shows up, so a text will claim to be a letter from somebody. And even this, if this is perhaps a famous mythical wise person of the past, so probably a fake letter, it does perhaps at least suggest the kind of environment in which magical practice or the circulation of magical texts was thought of as taking place. So, yeah, so the texts that we have essentially are kind of odds and ends, kind of rituals from lots of different original sources which have been put together into larger collections. There were probably, I think, more organised works of magic which survived. So, for example, Pliny seems to have access at, at one remove to texts by people like the Magus Ostanes, for example, and maybe by Zoroaster. And then there's mentions and other sources of texts by people like Manitho. And we have a few surviving more literary magical texts. So quite often these are not exactly the kinds of magic we find, but they're quite similar in some ways. So for example, things like the Serenidas or um, other Lithica texts, which describe the creation of magical gems, for example. Mm -hmm. um, the format is often quite similar to the magical papyri, but they're much more structured. Um, they're more literary and they're perhaps the kinds of magic which people would find less um, objectionable. And people here specifically being the Roman authorities who would perhaps have killed you if... Um, you were accused of having magical texts during this period. Right. So let's return to the question of the status of magic legally and the, and the question of esotericism in these magical texts, because there is a lot of very, very interesting references to secrecy, um, the mm. need to keep the texts secret within the texts themselves. But before we get to that stuff, can you give us a picture of the the incredible range of things you can do what that an adept in the egyptian magical practices of the pgm can do magically because you've already been alluding to so many little delicious uh, possibilities it'd be nice to get a kind of overview so we've talked about curses or kata desmoi like the making bad stuff to happen to people but what else do we get yeah, yeah exactly so i mean you find um the kind of kata desmoi and you find kind of both or multiple types so you find the kind of the ones to harm people and also the ones to bind somebody in love. Um, and what I should probably mention, which I forgot to mention earlier, is that really the texts in the, in the PGM are really um, of several different types. So we have the recipe books, then we also have the applied texts, the curse, well, in this case, we usually papyri rather than tablets, and also the amulets that are created using those instructions. Mm -hmm. um, so, yes, we have those kind of binding um, rituals. Um, we also have lots of healing spells, so they're often ignored because they're often much shorter, for example, than the longer, more complex rituals. There's actually lots of um, recipes for healing various problems, so things like um, uh, gynecological problems or gout or eye diseases, ulcers, headaches. So there's a huge number of, um, of healing practices found. 
um, of various types. Um, one of the major types is divination. Um, so, and again, there's lots of different types of divination. There's what we could call technical divination. Um, so PGM-7, which was um, a very long roll found by Budge in Upper Egypt, or bought by Budge in Upper Egypt, I should say, um, contains the Homero Manteon at the beginning. So this is excerpts um, of lines from Homer, um, which are paired with um, three numbers. And you basically roll a dice three times, and then you look at the verse, and you have to interpret your future or what you should do based on the Homeric verse. But there's also what we could call revelational divination, and this is kind of a major feature of the Greek magical papyri. These are rituals in which you basically summon a god or some other deity, an angel or a daimon, um, to appear to you and give you um, an answer to a question that you have. And these are really quite very strange and elaborate and often very, um, very difficult to interpret rituals. Sometimes the god is kind of meant to appear to you straight away, kind of directly in the air to your waking eyes. Um, at other times, the god is meant to appear in your dreams or um, through a medium like a, a lamp, the, the flame of a lamp in the liquid, um, the water or the oil, which is in a bowl. So kind of quite similar to what we would think of in terms of scrying um, in later magical practice. Um, and sometimes they use child mediums as well. So they'll have, instead of looking directly into the bowl themselves, they'll have a young, pure child and look into the bowl and kind of serve as an intermediary with the god. And then relating to those practices, um, but a little bit different, you have similar rituals where you summon a deity, but instead of asking them questions, they kind of form a long-term relationship with you, you could say. They become your paredros or your assistant spirit. And the idea is that instead of having to go through all of these complicated rituals, you can just tell your paredros what to do and they will do it from, for you. You know, anything from opening locked doors, creating miraculous food, helping you fly through the air and so on. Mystical Ascent is another thing which is a little bit related to this. Um, these are kind of similar to the, I guess, the Hechelot or Merkaba mysticism. There's one example of this in the PGM, the so-called Mithras liturgy, which yeah. received a lot of attention. Uh, but it's incredibly mysterious. I don't really know what to make of it, to be honest. Can you just give us a little picture of it? Um, because it's a fascinating text. It's it's quite a long one, isn't it? It's on the long it's on the long end of it, but it's not. I wouldn't say it's the longest ritual. So that it appears in PGM four, um, which is um, also known as the Great Magical Papyrus of Paris. So that's the largest um, surviving magical text in the fourth century, and also from the Theban Library. So it kind of opens with this this kind of secrecy trope. So the idea is that um, somebody is revealing it to their child. Um, I think it's specifically specified that it's a daughter, which is interesting because it implies that both genders are carrying out this kind of very, um, very elaborate ritual, um, revelational magic. So it says it's been revealed um, by, by the deities, um, and it's a ritual in which you'll basically see the sun god who's called Helios Mithras. Um, and this kind of focus on the second part of that title, Mithras, is what's led to it being called the Mithras Liturgy. So the idea is use a very kind of long um, invocation, which you do, and there's various kinds of uh, what seem to be breathing exercises, perhaps, that you carry out. And then as you, as you say this invocation and as you carry out these breathing exercises and as you draw in the power of the sun, you're basically, you, you start to rise through the air and through the various heavens. And you see all of the different gods, the different gods of the stars and of the heaven and of the directions um, all around you. And you have to say more formulae to protect yourself. And then ultimately you have a vision of the supreme god who seems to be the sun god, Helios Mithras, um, and who's this kind of young, beautiful god, fiery hair. And then I think this kind of ritual is meant to have a kind of revivifying effect on you. Uh, yeah, so I mean, it's a very, very complicated text. Lots has been written about it, but I, I feel like it's a text that we really don't understand very well exactly where it's situated 
um, in terms of religious practices of the period. Um, and even in terms of the religious culture from which it comes. Mm. Hopefully we'll have time to chat about that a little more later on. That's absolutely <laughs> fascinating. Um, yeah, well, maybe we will. It's, um, it's very complicated. As I said, I, I prefer not to touch it because so much has been written on it and it's it's so complicated. Uh, but it's it's a very interesting text. Mm. Yeah. But maybe I'll just th- throw in a few other practices. Those are probably the major oh, yeah. ones. Um, there's also ones for kind of more general good luck there's ones to send dreams if you want to make to send a dream message to somebody usually to make them fall in love with you um if you want to create an amulet to protect yourselves if you want to catch thieves uh, exercise a demon from somebody um if you want to improve the business of your shop um and then if you want to be invisible and then there's also a few which we call pygnia which are um, basically these little kind of party tricks making an egg look like an apple or um making people at a party look like they have donkey heads uh, so I mean, really, it's, it's incredibly diverse, and yeah, a lot of these rituals not always clear what they what relationship they have to one another and why they're conceived of as being part of a single or a, a related practice. Right, but um, having having looked at the history of the PGM as a corpus, history was made basically by this German scholar who decided this is all Greek magical papyri. We're going to throw it all in this thing, and now it's the PGM, and so they're all related just by the fact of being in, bound in the same volume together? Well, well, to some extent, yes, but also um, it's a bit more complicated than that because a lot of these large collections do actually contain all of these different kinds together. Um, so, for example, PGM 7, the long roll I mentioned, does contain the Homero Manteo, and it contains um, dream oracles where the god appears in dreams. It also contains these pygnia, okay. so these little tricks to make eggs look like, look like apples. So to an extent, it seems that even in the ancient world, they had a conception that there was this larger practice which involved various kinds of hidden knowledge for doing amazing things. So this concept of the marvelous is one which um, some scholars, including Richard Gordon, have, I think, quite rightly um, pointed to as a characteristic of, of ancient magic um, as it was conceived by ancient people. Yeah, and it, I mean, it's interesting as well, because if you look at an author like Pliny, even in the first century, you can get a lot of these same practices from looking at his description of the text of the Magoi, um, or the, well, like Magi, because he's writing in, in Latin. So, I mean, some scholars would definitely dispute this and say that magic is entirely a modern construct. But to me, it seems that the ancient People, I mean, people in first to fourth century Egypt did have some conception that this formed some kind of coherent practice, even if the logic behind that isn't necessarily always clear. Cool. So the next thing I wanted to ask you um, is sort of a, a, a bunch of related questions. These these texts are in Greek, right? Now, listeners to our podcast already know that Greek is very much a lingua franca to the eastern side of the Mediterranean in well, pretty much throughout antiquity. So just because something is written in Greek doesn't mean it is Greek in a, in a really significant... How, I mean, this is a, a very big question, but how Egyptian are the PGM in the sense of the kind... Well, you know what I mean by how Egyptian are they? And mm-hmm. does it make sense maybe to speak of Greco-Egyptian traditions of magic? So is this the sort of thing we find in earlier texts that before the coming of Greek people to Egypt? Um, is this is there blending going on? What is the kind of cultural background here? I'm sure it's a very complicated story. Yeah, I mean, there's no easy answers for magical papyri. Um, 
So in terms of how Egyptian they are, there's there's been a different... So the kind of interpretation of these texts has changed a lot over time. So as you say, the earliest editions um, and the big collection by Prize and Dance called them the Greek magical papyri, even though these come from Egypt, and even though they occur alongside Egyptian language material. So obviously I mentioned the Demotic material, and um, there's also um, what we call Old Coptic material. So that's the Egyptian language, but transcribed into Greek characters. So they come from Egypt. There's Egyptian language content inside them. And there's a lot of Egyptian deities involved. So, for example, Osiris, Isis, Anubis, Horus. And even when you have um, Greek deities mentioned, quite often it's Helios, Typhon. And as you discussed podcast on Isis and Osiris, these are basically the names that the Greeks, well, the Greek speakers use for um, for the Egyptian deities, Ray and, um, and Seth. So there are lots of very kind of at least superficial Egyptian elements. Um, and perhaps a lot of deeper Egyptian elements as well. And the kind of predominantly Egyptian interpretation of the Greek magical papyri has become, I guess, maybe the predominant one over the last 30 years. There's a lot of work in the 90s kind of trying to um, problematize this, this idea of magic. So in the 90s, if you look at the materials being written on magic, then you'll have lots of articles questioning what is magic, what do we mean when we say, when we say these papyri are magical, um, and how do we kind of use terminology in a more careful and, uh, and less essentializing way. Um, and so one solution was to, to really focus on the Egyptian element and to observe that, for example, um, the Theban Magical Library is probably owned by people trained in the priestly tradition. So the Demotic script in the second and third century, or the Demotic ones are being written, um, in the second and third century, as far as we know, the knowledge of Demotic was restricted to people within the temple system. And so this implies that at least the owners of the Theban Magical Library were trained as priests, so trained as traditional Egyptian priests. And you can maybe extend that to some of the other large texts that include um, Old Coptic, since Old Coptic was also developed in a uh, Egyptian temple system. Can I, can I stop um, you there and get you to yeah, expound please. very quickly on the linguistic situation? Because, because outsiders to Egyptology, oh, yeah. you're faced with hieroglyphics, which is a written form, but what kind of language lies behind them? that? And then you have Coptic, Demotic... Old, you just mentioned old Coptic. Um, you have all kinds of languages. So what, what's going on here? So if we start with Egyptian. So Egyptian is the predominant language of Egypt kind of throughout its history until maybe the 10th century, a little bit later, when it gets replaced by Arabic. So until the kind of, until the Arabization of Egypt, um, which happened centuries after the Arab conquest, we should imagine most people in Egypt are speaking what we could just call the Egyptian language. And the kind of, that changed obviously a lot over time and had various written forms, which had different relationships to the spoken forms. So the kind of, if you see a, an inscription, even from the Roman period, it's probably written quite an archaic form of Egyptian, which is called traditional Egyptian, um, which is basically what is taught in schools as Middle Egyptian. So this is kind of the classical form of the Egyptian language, which was fixed in the Middle Kingdom. And you could think about it as being a bit like kind of Latin um, for the medieval church. It's a kind of high language, which doesn't necessarily relate directly to the spoken language, but is used in kind of liturgical um, contexts and also, I guess, in um, high political contexts. So, for example, um, the first prefect of Egypt, when he wanted to write a stela in Egyptian, he used the traditional Egyptian language written in hieroglyphic script. The next form that's common in the Roman period is Demotic. So this is um, a later form of the language, but it's still a bit archaizing. Um, and it's written in a, in a cursive script, which is derived ultimately from hieroglyphs. So it looks a little bit like Arabic, people who haven't been trained in it. It's kind of very flowing, very beautiful. Um, and so maybe you could think of it as being like um, slightly 
maybe like uh, King James English, perhaps, um, compared to modern English. Gotcha. So it's kind of probably comprehensible to people in the Roman period, but also a little bit archaic. Um, and the writing system is very complicated. Um, there's lots of signs, lots of signs which look the same and which have to be identified based on their position within words and their position syntactically. So it took quite intense training to master it. The spoken language is probably similar to the language that we call Coptic nowadays. And that written form of Coptic was basically um, adapted to the Greek alphabet. So they took the Greek alphabet, they used it to write something like the contemporary form of spoken Egyptian. They added a few characters um, borrowed from the Demotic script um, to represent sounds that didn't exist in um, Greek, like sh. So the sh sound didn't exist in Greek, for example, so they borrowed a Demotic sign. Uh, and there's a kind of a real creativity in the, early pe- in the early Roman period in terms of how to write um, Egyptian. So that's what we call the old Coptic period. It's when people are experimenting with different ways to write the Egyptian language. Lots of different scripts appear regionally. So in different areas of Egypt, people are writing Egyptian in different ways, usually still in the temples, this is where it's being experimented with. Um, and then probably in the third or fourth century, one variety of that old Coptic script become standardized as the Coptic scripts. That was then borrowed by Christians to write um, the Egyptian translation of the Bible, which we call a Coptic Bible. So that's Egyptian. That's the main language of most people. But then Greek is introduced by the conquest of Alexander. So it's kind of, from the beginning, the language of administration, the language of uh, Greek immigrants and Greek colonists to Egypt. Egyptians might learn it to have access to the higher administration. Um, and we have evidence, for example, that even temple activity in the Roman period has taken place quite often in Greek for various political reasons. So, for example, the practice of oracles was originally carried out in Demotic in the, in the uh, Ptolemaic period, and they switched to carrying out the majority of oracles in Greek in their own period. That's um, very interesting. Um, yeah, so I, I don't know if that helps you. I mean, it's a very complicated linguistic situation. It's one of the main things that papyrologists study at the moment is the kind of interaction of the different languages. Hopefully that gives you a, a rough idea of I think the relationship so. with different languages. Um, is it right to say that behind the the potentially confusing references to, uh, you know, old-fashioned Egyptian or stand, classical standard Egyptian or whatever you're going to call it, the Middle Kingdom sort of uh, classicizing dialect that gets carried mm. on later, and Demotic and Coptic, there is one spoken language, though it has evolved, which is Egyptian. There's just, they've come up with numerous different ways to try to write it down. Yes, I mean, theoretically, any writing stage of Egyptian can be, of the Egyptian script can be used to write any language stage. So you could write, use hieroglyphs to write Coptic, you could use the Coptic scripts to write traditional Egyptian, and actually have one example of this from the first century. But I guess, uh, to make a kind of comparison again with English, you could think of, or maybe Italian is better, you could compare traditional Egyptian to Latin, maybe the Demotic to something like medieval uh, Tuscan, or something that a lot of Italians could, modern Italians could read, but might not be 100% comfortable with, and modern Italian would be the kind of equivalent of Coptic in the Roman period. Um, but then you have to imagine that then, there's then three different scripts associated with each language stage, which makes it even more complicated. Yeah. yeah. Thank you for that. I think there'll be at least a minority of listeners who are very grateful for that summary. It, it helps me clear up my thinking on this stuff as well. So the reason we went on that little discursus was we, we were talking about writing. How, how Greek they are, yes. Yeah. So, yeah, so, so, I mean, the majority of writing in Egypt this period is happening in Greek because, I mean, so we have Demotic technically, and technically we do have Old Coptic as well, but very few people actually are literate in Demotic. Um, 
and also the old Coptic script is, or the Coptic script has not really developed to the point where a lot of people are using it. Um, that doesn't really happen until the fourth century or so. Um, and so all writing really in Egypt in this period is happening in Greek outside the temple sphere. So even, for example, private letters, somebody literate in Egyptian might have to find somebody who wrote Greek. They'd kind of maybe dictate a letter in Egyptian, the person would do their best to translate it into Greek, it'd be sent to their, their recipient, and the recipient would then have to find somebody who spoke Greek to translate it for them. Right. Um, so, I mean, so, so, so that's to say that the Greek aspect of this um, can be overemphasized, um, I think. I mean, other people disagree. Some people have suggested that the fact that they're written in Greek implies predominantly um, Greekophone or Greek literate audience, but I'm not sure that necessarily follows. Um, I would say it's probably more likely that they're in Greek because Greek is the, is the lingua franca, not only of Egypt, but of the whole Eastern Mediterranean. That makes sense. Um, but how it's much? Just, it's just the language of writing. How much bilingualism do we have evidence of? I mean, there's a huge amount of bilingualism. So um, perhaps in some of the big Greek cities like Alexandria and maybe, say, Oxyrhynchus or Antinoe, maybe you could get away as a monolingual Greek speaker. But, I mean, anybody who's from Egyptian background wants to access the higher levels of administration, wants to be taken seriously as a person of culture, would have to become fully um, literate in Greek. And, and vice versa? speak Greek. Would the Greek elites uh, probably, be speaking Egyptian? So probably a lot less so actually the other way around. Um, so it's probably... So, I mean, if you're a Greek elite... Um, and you don't have any reason to interact with monolingual Egyptians because you probably wouldn't. I mean, there's a famous um, famous uh, passage in Plutarch where he says that um, Cleopatra was the only Ptolemy who bothered to learn Egyptian. I mean, I don't know if that's true. I mean, maybe she didn't even maybe she didn't even know more than a few words. But yeah, I mean, I think it gives you, gives you an idea that um, a lot of people probably would have had a lot of probably people who were whose native language was Greek in Egypt would probably have had very little to no understanding of Egyptian. But how many monolingual monolingual Greek speakers there were is kind of uncertain. Was it a large proportion or was it a very small proportion of Egypt? Okay. We don't really know. So that being said, here we have this this culture with two different main languages interacting and, and um, very asymmetrically in many ways due to mm. the nature of power, right? The nature of state power in the Hellenistic period. And then, of course, a different power relation coming in when the Romans take over, because they will have also brought Latin to the mix, although mm. not as much as people might think, right? Because it's still... No, you only really find, yeah, you find Latin at the very, very highest levels of administration. So the governor of Egypt was usually, um, was originally, I think, an equestrian from, well, originally from Rome. So his, his native language had originally been Latin. Um, so you do find it at the very top and also in the Roman army. So because the Roman army very often uses soldiers from other parts of the empire, a lot of them would have been using Latin as the vehicular language among them, even if it's not um, their primary language. So those are really the two contexts in which you find Latin in Egypt, at the very highest levels of administration among soldiers and then also amongst a few um, Roman citizens. So in the early period, there's relatively few Roman citizens. And when they would get legal documents produced, they might do so in Latin. That's really the only cases that you find Latin in Roman Egypt, at least um, before, say, the 4th century or so. Cool. Now, we have the PGM, and then we also have the Demotic Magical Papyri, which I know you've worked on um, and continue to work on. Would you say that they depict in any way, in any significant ways, different magical traditions? Or do they seem to be much coming from much the same thought world? Um, so, so the relationships, the Demotic papyri are often the same as the Greek papyri. So, there's, so the major Demotic papyri that are published, um, there's probably lots that are unpublished, some of which I've seen, but not any of which I've really studied in depth. So, for example, if you take um, one which is the, called the London Leiden Demotic papyrus, this is the largest Demotic magical roll which survives, it's from the 3rd century. 
It has lots of spells in Demotic, but quite often it will use, it will insert sections in Greek. So, for, so there you have Demotic and Greek side by side, probably from the same context. So another text from the Magical Library, you have um, what's called PDM 12. Um, and there you have columns of Greek text in the middle, and on each side you have columns of Demotic text. So it seems that the same person is using both. So really, I mean, in terms of the context of use, they represent probably the same tradition. Um, in terms of the the content, the types of rituals they have are very similar. So all of what I've said about the Greek text, you know, revelation, divination, love spells, curses, you find exactly the same things in the contemporary Demotic texts. What's perhaps different is the language in which it's expressed. So, for example, in Greek, you have a lot of these performatives, so things like I invoke you, I adjure you. That's a lot rarer in the Demotic text. They tend to use much more Egyptian structures. Um, so things like identifying yourself with a deity. So, for example, I am Horus um, is, a, is a more common verbal paradigm that you'll find in the Demotic texts. That's very um, interesting. So that, that's one point where we can point to something which is less, as it were, Egyptian, the Greek material. So they, someone has had to make a conceptual translation to a Greek mindset mm. where you don't identify with gods, but you invoke gods. Well, it's, more, it's more, even more complicated than that because you actually do find both phenomena in both corpora, okay. but the proportion is different in each. Gotcha. So, it seems, so what I would say is that you have maybe two, what we could think of as parallel traditions, but two parallel traditions which are constantly in contact with each other. So there's certain norms that you find in the Demotic text, there's certain norms that you have in the Greek texts, um, but you also find some texts which translate, I mean, perhaps they actually have whole texts translated from one language to the other, it's quite likely. But in other cases, they translate um, verbal patterns from one uh, tradition to the other. If we go a bit deeper, though, so that's the kind of, so if you look at the level of content, the level of use, the level of language, the kind of deeper underlying ideas are often quite similar. So the kind of worldview that the magical papyri assume is often quite deeply Egyptian. So quite often they have this, they invoke the sun god, and the sun god is conceived as the kind of self-created creator uh, god um, who is reborn each day, who has all these animal forms through which it changes over the course of the day. There's references to the kind of myth of Isis um, and her search for Osiris um, as a kind of paradigm. Um, so Isis is kind of the, one of the prototypical magicians in the Egyptian tradition. And by identifying yourself with Isis or by saying a recipe was created by Isis, you can kind of um, increase the power of a spell. And you find that in both traditions. So at a kind of deeper theological level, quite often the Greek papyri um, do seem quite deeply influenced by Egyptian ideas, which are often very old. Another example, apart from identification with a god, which you find in the Greek material, is the use of threats against the gods. Um, so this is one of the things that um, Porphyry was very shocked at when he um, encountered Greek-Egyptian magic. He, he talks about you know, how, how shocking it is that someone would threaten to upturn the solar bark. This is the boat that the sun travels through the sky in. Um, but this is something which you find very early on in Egyptian ritual texts. Um, and you find very similar threats in both the Demotic and the Greek material. But there you do see a kind of very deep Egyptian background to even some of the Greek texts. Right. And, um, and indeed a deep Egyptian background, perhaps more than people think, to the debate over theurgy between Porphyry and Iamblichus. Because mm, um, yeah, most, most discussions of that debate are entirely in a Greek context. And the fact that it's that Iamblichus's reply has traveled under the name On the Mysteries of the Egyptians is seen as a, a bit of kind of exotic color that he splashed on there just to give it to give it some gravitas, maybe. But if I think it's quite certain from Iamblichus's writing that he did know texts which are similar to those in the Greek magical papyri, 
Um, and I mean, I think Porphyry probably did as well from what we can get, get what we can glean of his letter to Nebo. Um, so yeah, I think there, there's a very interesting connection people have been aware of for a very long time between those two corpora. So this brings me to a question I've really wanted to ask you because I don't know the answer at all. Egyptian it, written evidence from ancient Egypt is always subject to this very peculiar status because just due to the, well, firstly due to the fact that Egypt was the only source for this stuff, papyrus, which was the only kind of real analog to paper in the ancient world. So they had tons of that lying around. So they were much more likely just to scribble stuff down on a bit of paper than anyone else in the ancient world, because they could. Mm -hmm. But also because the climate of Egypt is so perfectly suited for the preservation of this fragile material. So listeners will remember the um, Derveni papyrus, which survives from, mm. from the Balkans in Europe. But that's a very, very rare and wonderful occurrence when we have a papyrus from exactly, outside yeah. of Egypt that survives. Keeping that in mind, that we just have more stuff from Egypt, I'd like to ask you what I think is a fascinating question, which may be unanswerable, which is how special is Egypt in having this enormous written magical literature? And how much do we just concentrate on Egypt because nothing like this survives from anywhere else with the, you know, the lead curse tablets being a, a, an important exception? Mm. What do you think? Uh, so, uh, yeah, so again, another very difficult question, but very interesting question. So, I think the answer that somebody gives you to this will probably depend a lot on their particular perspective. Um, so some people will certainly say that um, this material is very Egyptian or uniquely Egyptian. Uh, so for example, Robert Rinder, who's a very prominent Egyptologist who wrote a lot about magic in the 90s, um, argued that this material was really all translations of older Egyptian material and that you could probably trace a continuous use of Egyptian magic, you know, all the way back, perhaps even to the Old Kingdom, all the way through to the Roman period. Um, but even there, there's actually an interesting suggestion that um, it might have relationships to material outside of Egypt, because there's a group of very famous Sethian curse tablets from Rome. Um, he basically suggests that they were written by an Egyptian priest because the content in them, linguistically and also in terms of the images they contained, they contain an image which looks like a, a donkey or a horse-headed Seth threatening Osiris. The similarity of those texts, those cursed tablets from, uh, I think, 1st or 2nd century Rome, the Greco-Egyptian magical text was so strong that he hypothesized an Egyptian priest practicing in Rome. My perspective is probably a little bit different. I think that the Egyptian elements of the Greek magical pyre are definitely there, but I think they can maybe be overemphasized. So I talked just a second ago about the sun god and how that shows a very deep Egyptian influence, but there's also references to a moon goddess in the Greek magical pyre very often, and there's no native Egyptian moon goddess. I mean, there's Hathor, perhaps, or Isis, um, but the identification with the moon is not really as complete as you find in the Greek magical papyri. Um, and so the most recent analysis of these texts by Liuba Bortolani um, suggests that really these represent a fundamentally Greek conception of the moon goddess um, as, you know, Selene, Hecate, Persephone, which has been adopted by Egyptians. Um, and I think that's a very good way of looking at it in, this, in the sense that these are really, to use a controversial word, hybrid texts, you know, they're taking material from different cultures. And I think that perhaps opens up the possibility that we did have similar texts uh, from other parts of the um, Greco-Roman world. So I briefly mentioned Pliny earlier. Um, he's not, I haven't studied the work of Pliny as deeply as I would like to, but from reading his texts, which are, you know, the, I mean, he, he, his history, sorry, his natural history is from the first century, and he's drawing upon texts which are obviously older than the period that he's writing in. But he does seem to be describing a range of practices, and in some cases, particular practices, 
which are quite similar to those we find in the Greco-Egyptian magical diary. So there, at least, it seems that those texts were available in Greek in Rome, at least in the first century. He was also uh, stationed in Asia Minor, was he not? Oh, yes, of course, yes. So he might have been, so, um, that, well, we, we couldn't say, maybe it's more likely they'd be circulating in Rome than in Asia Minor, but also maybe they could have been circulating in both places. I guess you could never really nail that down. Yes, but I think the, the kind of larger, um, so the larger evidence that we have from literary texts and also from the artifacts like the curse tablets that you mentioned, um, and also the magical gems. So the magical gems, it's often quite hard to know where they come from. But this does suggest, at least to me, that at least from the first century onwards, the kind of larger Mediterranean magical practice might look in some ways similar to that which we find in the Greco-Egyptian magical texts, even if there's significant differences. And it's actually quite interesting, as, as Rittner's um, argument implies, it may have been that Greco-Egyptian magic was kind of adopted by people in other places. So again, we can think about multiple kind of traditions of, I guess, magic and inverted commas. So it might be a Jewish tradition people have talked about. I think it was probably an independent Christian tradition from very early. But this Greco-Egyptian model seems to be adopted by practitioners elsewhere. So, for example, we find cursed tablets in North Africa, um, in parts of the Near East and in other part, in parts of Europe that have very similar um, verbal formulae, um, very similar deities, very similar magical names, even very similar images to those we find in the Greek magical papyri. Um, so maybe that, that Egyptian magic that was originally practiced in Egypt kind of circulated a bit. Uh, and one, uh, I think, uh, Haim Kurbera has argued that the use of, for example, matronymics um, in cursed tablets, which appears in the f- first century, comes from Egyptian practice. So this is, by, this is basically identifying somebody by their mother's name. So right. in the older cursed tablets from Athens, they identify people in different names. Sometimes they use a demotic, you know, which, uh, which uh, demos they belong to. Um, they might mention uh, their husband or their father. First century all- onwards, they almost always use the mother's name. Um, which is something that's typical of Egyptian texts. Yeah, and very um, seems very foreign to a Greek way of thinking. Like ev- your name in Greek is basically your name and then a genitive of your father's name. They they were very patriarchal in that way. So yeah, that is exactly. striking. I mean, you find that even in administrative texts from Egypt and Greek. Uh, so the so the magical practice is actually quite interesting in that regard that it focuses on the mother, which seems to go back to older Egyptian magical texts. Hmm. How much do you think the cult of Isis and other Egyptian gods? which became very much just kind of Roman cults in some way, um, served as a vehicle maybe for, for the transmission of magical material. The reason I ask this is because I know that the, our, our largest body of curse tablets, lead curse tablets, comes mm. from the temple of Isis Magna Mater, the, the, the sanctuary of Isis Magna Mater near Trier in Germany, where mm-hmm. uh, the curse is a go-go. And, you know, it's, it might be significant that this is an Isis sanctuary. Uh, yes, I'm going to have to be very, very speculative here. I think some people probably argue that the cult of Isis played a large role in it. So, for example, if you look at um, Christian Bull's recent book, The Tradition of Hermes Trismegistos, I think that's a fantastic argument that things like Hermeticism and perhaps even what we'd call magical practices may have circulated with Egyptian priests and with um, these kind of hermetic groups that he argues for. I'm, I'm less sure about that. I think, um, I mean, in my understanding is that the, um, the Isis uh, shrine in Mainz I don't think any of the curse tablets are addressed to Isis. I think that's an, inter- an interesting omission that her name doesn't seem to appear on any of them. And I think they're all in Latin as well, um, whereas mm. some of the curse tablets which you find in the Latin West are written in Greek, which does imply perhaps more of a kind of foreign practice. Um, but more broadly, my perspective is that the curse tablets are probably, uh, an, I mean, it's difficult to say indigenous for anything, but indigenous Greek language practice. The earliest examples that we find are from 6th century Sicily, 
and then shortly afterwards you find them in Athens. And it's not until um, really the Roman period that you start to find comparable material in Egypt or directly comparable material in Egypt. Um, so however the Greeks started practicing it, I think the use of lead to fix Siona's, as far as we can tell, is really a Greek practice which then spreads elsewhere. So I'm not really sure if we could put that down to the cult of Isis. And my impression is that, so I think maybe, I mean, again, I'm being very speculative and kind of personal in my opinion. I think that perhaps the spread of Greco-Egyptian magic could be seen along similar lines to the spread of Greco-Egyptian astrology or astrology slash astronomy in the sense that it's kind of developed in the late Ptolemaic or early Roman period, and then it becomes adopted elsewhere, even though it's originally culturally Greco-Egyptian. And I'm not really sure what the exact vectors are for that, um, but I think it's probably based on written text as a primary, primary vector. But again, you could perhaps have wandering practitioners. You know, the, the image of an Egyptian priest, as you know, is a very common one in literary text from the, from the Roman period. Um, so maybe there were people who called themselves and perhaps even were Egyptian priests who were circulating these kinds of practices. Um, outside of Egypt, hmm. the um, the story from Porphyry's biography of Plotinus is a a wonderful example of that. So mm. There's a there's exactly. an Egyptian yeah, priest yeah. in town. Let's conjure up your personal daimon to visible appearance because Egyptians are very good at that. Yeah, yes, I mean people have very early on noticed this looks a lot like the practices in the um, Greco-Egyptian magical papyri. So yes, I mean there, and I, and you're right. In fact, in that case, he does use the Temple of Isis in Rome. Although apparently, because it's the only pure place, maybe that means that he he worked there and he was um, advertising it or something like that. Right. Yeah. <laughs> or maybe he had. Maybe there were ritual strictures analogous to the kind of things you find in Judaism. Maybe where I'm as an Egyptian priest, I'm not allowed to do magic here or here or here or here because <laughs> you can't ensure that this hasn't happened or that hasn't happened or you know. Might have been an uh, yeah, an, that's interesting. An yeah. ass might have been brought through this place, and as we know, the ass is a symbol of Set, and therefore I can't do my magic here because Set's influence, you know, something like that. Perhaps. Yeah, well, I mean, you do find that in the Greek magical empire. There are mentions of you know making sure that you carry out a ritual in a pure place, in a place where no one has died, which faces a certain direction. Which um, so there are various ritual structures. So it could relate to something like that. Um, although at the same time, you have. Um, Oregon basically reports um, Celsus is talking about people trained by Egyptians, so presumably people who claim to be Egyptian priests, um, evoking um, spirits in the marketplace, apparently. So not everybody was, was quite so principled about it. Right. So, Corsi, thank you so much for all this data on the question of Egyptian magic in the, the wider Greco-Roman context, which is really fascinating. Um, it will certainly be recurring when the podcast turns to not only Plotinus, but especially to Iamblichus and Porphyry, mm. and the, this incredible debate about theurgy, because they're distant from Egypt, but they're living in a Greco-Roman world where Egypt has been incorporated for hundreds of years and seemingly has been incredibly influential outside of her borders, right? Um, mm -mm. We know this about astrology. It's very well documented. It's, it seems it's a little more difficult to document with magical material, but there's lots of hints and non-Egyptians outside of Egypt looked to Egypt as a place where you could get good, powerful rituals. It's a, a place that was known for its magic mm. in various ways. Yes, yeah, certainly. So now I wanted to turn to what I, a really fascinating part of your work, which is the, the influence of Egyptian magic, not in the Greco-Roman world, but in Western esotericism, or let's say Western thought more generally. So I wonder if you could tell us about this. I, I, I remember talking to you about three specific ways in which this this text we're talking about, the PGM, so this corpus, then as a corpus went on to have very, very interesting kind of echoes 
in in history. Yes, I mean it's incredibly. I mean, again, this is something that raises almost more questions than we have answers to, as with almost everything with the Greek magical inquiry. But even though the texts themselves aren't very well known, I think they've had quite a deep influence on our world in various ways. So one example which I haven't mentioned before, um, but I find fascinating, is the text that I mentioned already, um, PGM 7, which was found by Egyptians somewhere near Luxor and then sold to the British um, Museum via Wallace Budge. This contains an image of an Ouroboros, and it's not just an Ouroboros, it's kind of the Ouroboros. So... Um, Carl Preisendance discussed it uh, in an article in which he kind of coined the term Ouroboros as a noun. Before that, it had just been an adjective to describe a serpent which was um, biting its tail in Greek. So he basically brought it into modern language for the very first time. And apparently Carl Jung read his work and got the concept of the, and the word Ouroboros uh, from Carl Preisendance. So in a sense, this text, PGM7, has the Ouroboros, the, the original Ouroboros that every Ouroboros um, in since then has been copying, I suppose. Including the Ouroboros on the um, the homepage of the Schwepp. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, there you go. <laughs> now we know where it comes from. Price and dance. Uh, although it's quite a weird Ouroboros because it has a lion's head. So it's actually even more complicated than just a, a snake. Yes, I mean, that's one one example of the way in which subtly the, the magical papyri have kind of infiltrated, uh, I guess, our consciousness more generally. Uh, there's another interesting example which is interesting to me, which is the influence of these texts on modern sociology. So there's a very well-known work, which is the um, general theory of magic of Marcel Mauss. Well, that's how they pronounce it in French. In German, they'd say Marcel Mauss. Uh, that's how I usually say it. Um, so let's just say Mauss. Um, it's not actually by uh, just Marcel Mauss, though. It's actually a, it was actually co-written by um, Mauss and Henri Hubert. That in the last French accent is um, Henry Hubert. Right. Um, so let's say Mouse and Hubert, uh, at the end of the 19th century, they basically wrote what turned out to be an incredibly influential work for the theory of magic and sociology from the kind of foundational works. It's what Durkheim used when he was writing the elementary forms of the religious life um, for his reference to magic. Um, and what's interesting is that this is also where the term mana comes from. So mana has kind of influenced popular culture in lots of ways. If you play um, uh, a computer game or a role-playing game, you probably talk about mana as your kind of store of magic. And this all comes from the work of um, Mouse and um, Hubert on trying to come up with a general scheme of how to understand magic cross-culturally. Now, because it's kind of within anthropology or sociology, most people focus on the fact that they talk about things like Polynesian or Melanesian or Native American or Australian practices, which is kind of typical of early anthropology. They you are know, looking for kind of quote-unquote primitive societies um, that show what, you know, modern, again, quote, unquote, developed societies might have been like at an earlier stage. So the idea is you go to a simpler form of the culture to fight, to understand more complex forms. But what's often ignored is the fact that they actually used the magical fire as one of their main source. And one of the key pieces of evidence for this is the fact that um, Hubert had written an encyclopedia entry a few years earlier, just on Greek and Roman magic, um, in which he basically makes the same arguments that he does in the general theory, but using only Greek and Roman materials. So, for example, they talk about the fact that magic is very similar to religion. This is one of their kind of key insights. That it's not just kind of a stage on the way to religion, but in fact that it draws upon religious elements. And to prove this, they kind of talk about how the magical papyri use sacrifice, how they adapt hymns. And so this directly comes out of the scholarship um, on the early Greek magical papyri, which tried to reconstruct um, older hymns out of the metrical material. They use Mithras liturgy as a key evidence of an ad adaptation of an older religious ritual in in magical practice um, and they even kind of found 
the quite common modern idea that modern science grew out of magic. So this is quite a common meme, you could say, amongst, I think, both scholars and lay people. And the evidence that they cite for this is the fact that magicians, they say, had made progress in metallurgy. And the evidence for this is actually the Theban Magical Library. Right. The Theban Magical Library contains two what we call alchemical texts, but really this is a period when alchemy and chemistry are the same thing. And so the recipes that we have in this collection um, are basically for producing various metal alloys, amongst other things. And they probably would have worked if you got the quantities right. So as there are evidence for the kind of scientific basis or the science, relationship between science and magic, they actually use the specific corpus which was discovered by a specific Egyptian at some point in the 1820s, which has then become a much bigger idea in the history of science. Right. Um, so, I mean, I think it's fascinating the way in which these things happen almost by accident. It's not to say that these are wrong ideas, but they obviously come from somewhere. There's a specific chain of events which have led to these ideas being proposed. And a chain that goes all the way back to the vagaries, not only of textual survival, but also then the vagaries of which peasants decided to dig a where to find fertilizer <laughs> and then when they found a bunch of old papyri did they decide to use them as fire starters or did they just think mm. well, i could probably sell these to the the greek guy at, in alexandria and make a pretty drachma off it and then yeah yeah exactly yeah <laughs> and then fast forward and you have carl Jung going i have found the primal symbol of the alchemical work the ouroboros and he's actually reading this in a german book by a dude mm -hmm. who's sort of coining a new word based on older Yeah, I mean, stuff. he's borrowing a Greek word into English and using it as a noun. Yeah, or into German, right? Before it was an adjective. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, so those are two. I mean, just that, I've kind of flown through uh, Marcel Mauss and Henri Hubert uh, in a way that doesn't really do them justice. Those are just a few examples of the way in which the magical papyri actually inform their argument at a very specific point. In terms of, I guess, modern occultism, I'll just kind of go through that again very quickly. Um, but it's very interesting, and again, this kind of goes back to the, the, the publication history and the way in which the publication history factors into um, the reception of these texts. So I mentioned that the very first um, magical text to be published in a modern language was this text called PGM5, which is in the um, British Library present, and that was published in the 1840s by Charles Wycliffe Goodwin. So Charles Wycliffe Goodwin published the first text, actually one of my favorite magical papyri. It's a nice little codex with some very interesting text in it. One of the texts it contains is a text called Della of Yeu, the painter, the Zographos. Um, it's sometimes translated as hieroglyphist. Um, that's how it's translated in the modern Betz edition. But I think that's overinterpreting it. So this is basically a kind of exorcistic ritual to kind of um, protect somebody from demons. And it has some interesting kind of Judaizing features. So it includes the names Israel and Moses, for example. Um, we know that Jews were in the ancient world were associated with the practice of exorcism. This is probably an example of a person writing in Greek in Egypt, borrowing from their ideas of Jewish culture. But because this text was available in the 19th century in English, it was then borrowed basically by the magicians of the Golden Dawn. So the first person to do it was probably Alan Bennett. Um, who used it in part of a, a larger ritual to um, invoke a spirit called Tathareth, who I think is the spirit of Mercury. And he basically incorporated part of this exorcistic ritual into his invocation. And from Alan Bennett, as discovered probably by the most famous modern magician, Alistair Crowley, who then incorporated it into the Guisha, which was the translation of the... Um, the Key of Solomon um, by McGregor Mathers. So it actually appears in the first page of, I think it's the first page, or let's just say early on in the 
in the translation of the Goetia in Gothic type in English translation based on the translation of Goodwin as the kind of as the preliminary invocation and he he interprets it in various ways and one of the ways in which he interprets it is it begins with the phrase I call upon you the headless one he uses the Greek word akephalos which is used to refer to various headless gods and and demons but he decides it's not really headless it's actually bornless it's actually a god without a beginning because head in Hebrew is resh and resh can also mean beginning so in, in essence he transforms this text, which is originally an ancient exorcism, which draws upon Jewish elements. And he first of all reinterprets it as an invocation. He changes the, um, the deity invoked, invoked, so it's not um, a god without a head, it's the kind of god without a beginning. And he later on actually incorporates um, Egyptian elements. So he actually takes out the Judaizing elements, and he replaces his own Egyptianizing elements. So his Book of the Law, which he um, received in, in Egypt, he actually received it after reciting this text uh, various times. Reciting this text was one of the, the prompts which led to him finding the Stella of Revelation, which led to the Book of the Law. So let, um, me just, let me just rewind and make sure I've got this right. Alistair Crowley, hanging out on his honeymoon in Egypt, is reading Goodwin's edition of PGM5, right? He probably has his own copy of it by then, or he may even have memorized it by then. Right. So he's reading his adaptation of that ritual. Right. Um, he actually reads it various times in Egypt. There's one time that he read it apparently in the king's chamber of the Great Pyramid, and it was lit up by um, a supernatural light. But another time, which which he read it as, as on his honeymoon, as you say, his wife I think was Rose Bennett at the time. Rose Kelly. Rose Kelly, thank you. Rose Kelly basically received uh, information from apparently uh, the god Horus, I think, that he was to go to the museum. Um, the Black Museum is the former what is now the uh, the Egyptian Museum in Cairo, and she led him to steal a 666, which is a stealer of um, uh, a priest called Anchefen Hons. Dun, dun, dun. Um, and this becomes a central figure then in his later uh, in his later work, including the Book of the Law, which he received shortly afterwards. And so when he goes back later on and edits what is now known as the Bornless Rite, he replaces the name Moses with Anhefen Kons, the name of this priest who Stila, he was led to by the spell itself. And he replaces Israel with um, Chem, which is the one of the Egyptian names for Egypt. So, I mean, I, I find that absolutely fascinating the way in which it's been received by um, a modern magician and which has been edited. And it's kind of continued to evolve. So, for example, um, Israel Regardi, who is one of the people who um, popularized Golden Dawn magic in the 20th century, he kind of went back to Goodwin's original translation. And he noted that Crowley had actually changed it, the meaning, and so he actually gave Goodwin's original translation, but noted that it was actually still a good ritual as an invocation, which was what Crowley had used it for. He used it to kind of attain union with your personal angel, who is your higher self. And it's then kind of been, once again, in the, in the 80s and 90s, after the English translation from Betts, it's kind of been taken up again by modern magicians who kind of are now going back to what they consider an even better translation, um, an even better source. And so its kind of popularity really continues. I think there's a bunch of publications in the last 10 years um, which attempt to update kind of ancient Greco-Egyptian magic and ancient Coptic magic for modern magicians. And very often this ritual, the Bornless Rite, um, is a central piece of the rituals that they include. And again, this goes back to the vagaries of, of how these papyri were found and how they were published and how they were received. Yeah. And the, the very influential mediator of Aleister Crowley, right? So even if um, people are trying to go back to the uh, the more pure spell that before Crowley had tampered with it, they're still presumably mainly interested in it in the first place because Crowley was 
interested in it and had such spectacular results using it, right? Absolutely, yeah. And it's, I mean, it's very interesting because there's a whole bunch of rituals which are probably more suitable for a union with your personal angel. There's actually a ritual in the Magical Pyre in PGM7, which is for that exact purpose. Uh, but because of Crowley's influence and because of the history of this particular text, um, it tends to get preferred. Um, there's actually one other text that he used, which was a curse from the Greek section of the Demotic Magical Papyrus of London and Leiden. It's actually quite a nasty curse where you call upon Typhon to destroy somebody. And he actually uses it against McGregor Mathers <laughs> after they're falling out. But again, there's some interesting things in it. So he, he misinterpreted Todena. So Todena means so-and-so. He misinterpreted his as, as Hodenos, so the terrible one. The terrible one. Um, Exactly. So instead of just putting Mather's name in, I mean, maybe he could have, maybe he, maybe he did this deliberately. Instead of just inserting Mather's name where it needed to go, he actually said Ton Danon Mathers, the terrible Mathers. So uh, interesting. I think he actually published that in its original Greek text um, in capitals in, in the Guishia. Okay. That is some choice stuff, Corsi. I think th- this inner history of, of the history of modern magic needs to be much more widely known. Now, there's one other very fascinating modern, arguably esoteric movement that uh, made use of the PGM, which is, of course, the Church of Latter-day Saints, also known as the Mormons. Quite an interesting story. Uh, but essentially, the, the Latter-day Saints um, was a larger movement of which the Mormon, modern Mormon church is one of the surviving uh, churches. Um, it began, obviously, in the 19th century. We begin with Joseph Smith, who is their prophet. Um, and their kind of foundational text, Book of Mormon, was apparently written in Egyptian. So it was refor- written in a language, which he called Reformed Egyptian, on golden plates, um, which he found and which he then translated with supernatural help, and which were then basically taken away by an angel after he'd finished translating them. And so his kind of one of his claims to authority was his ability as a translator and this ancient text which he discovered, which gave this history of Jewish people in America before the modern day and um, the appearance of Jesus to them. So um, what is interesting is that this is kind of the period of Egyptomania, right? The 19th century, well, one of the periods of Egyptomania in the 19th century, the idea that Egyptian artifacts are being discovered and they're starting to be interpreted for the first time. And the period of Joseph Smith's activity kind of corresponds with the stage of the collection and the first publication of Pyre that we were just talking about. So actually, one of the we talked about Jean d'Anastasi. Um, one of the one of the people that he was involved with, um, a man called Antonio Labolo, purchased a group of papyri and a group of mummies um, from Thebes. He sold it to an American. <laughs> these papyri and these mummies ended up in America in a traveling show. They came to Kirkland, Ohio, where um, in 1835, where the Latter Day Saints were based at that time, and the um, person in charge of the exhibition found out that there was somebody nearby who could read Egyptian. So already at this time, Egyptian had been deciphered by Champollion. There's still very few people who could, who could read it, and there's still, there's still lots of uh, mysteries of the Egyptian language. So it's still not a very well-known language. So essentially, the curator of the exhibition got in contact with Joseph Smith. Joseph Smith came, he looked at the papyri, and he said, yes, I can read these, and I can tell you what they are. One is a book written by Abraham. Another one is a book written by Joseph, the, both the patriarchs. The rest are various epitaphs and astrological material. And so the church basically bought these papyri, and Joseph Smith started writing little articles about them and tried to translate them. And so over the next seven years, he produced an Egyptian alphabet and grammar. Modern Mormon scholars are a bit, how should I put this? They dispute what the purpose of the Egyptian grammar is. They say that it wasn't necessarily his attempt to translate Egyptian. So the modern church argues that his, his translation was inspired and not necessarily based directly on what was in the text. 
Um, but at least the general interpretation of most people at the time, it seems, was that he was actually translating what was in the texts. And according to what he said, the only one of them that he completely published was the Book of Abraham. It was a text written by Abraham's own hand, describing his attempted sacrifice in Chaldea, his escape to Egypt, um, and then his adventures through um, the divine realm. So it contained a lot of very interesting material, including, um, for example, the fact there are multiple gods, there are multiple inhabited worlds, contain more information about the divine priesthood, about pre-mortal existence. This is a Mormon doctrine, the idea that you exist before you're born mm -hmm. um, as a spirit. And controversially, it also contains the explanation of why black people shouldn't have access to the Mormon priesthood, because the descendants of Canaan, among whom the Pharaoh was one, were not allowed to become priests. And so this becomes a problem for the Mormon church in the 20th century when um, when black people are trying to become priests and they're not allowed to. And, and we should say this in the Mormon church, priesthood is not a sacerdotal office in the same way it is in Catholicism, for example. It's kind of the normal state of an adult male. And that normal adult male in the church is considered a priest. Right. Um, and so for black members, it's considered a, a kind of exclusion from uh, the main body of the church. Anyway, that's kind of all the theology stuff. So it's kind of an, quite an important, quite an interesting text because these doctrines are not actually in the Book of Mormon. So we have these texts, which are apparently translated from Egyptian hieroglyphs um, or Egyptian scripts, which have this theological importance for the Mormon church. At the time, Egyptologists who saw the printed plates that accompanied this translation started saying these looked suspiciously like Egyptian funerary texts, which they were finding in the hundreds in Egypt at the time. But the church found various ways to, to deflect those criticisms, and the papyri actually disappeared after Joseph Smith's death. I mean, not straight away. They were, they were inherited by somebody, and then they went through various hands, and they were thought to have been destroyed in the um, Chicago fire. They resurfaced in the 1960s, and at this point, they were given to Egyptologists to study, and the Egyptologists said, yes, these are basically typical funerary documents. So these are, there's some books of the dead, there's a book of breathings, which is a later funerary text, similar to the book of the dead. There's a hypocephalus, which is an amulet, which you place under the head of a mummy. So this created a, quite a big problem for some members of the Mormon church. You have the first, or perhaps the only case in which Joseph Smith's reliability as a prophet can be tested. Um, you know, his other texts had either gone back to heaven or had been pure revelation. But you have this one text, which we actually have the original of, and which he claimed to have translated, apparently, and it doesn't say what it should say. And so this then necessitated various um, apologetics, and so various um, people from Mormon Church with trading in Egyptology have come up with lots of solutions to try to explain this discrepancy. One of the interesting ones is where the magical papyri come into it. So again, this goes back to the kind of publication history. Um, in the early 90s, um, late 80s, early 90s, the Betts translations became available, and apparently um, a Mormon student at the University of Toronto found these and realized that the name Abraham shows up in them. So you have these texts, which are increasingly being understood as um, Egyptian ritual texts, um, in which we find Abraham. And so Abraham's name appears to an image of Anubis embalming uh, a mummy, basically. Uh, and it's apparently to be used in a love spell. The relationship between the, the image and the spell is not completely clear to me, but there you go. Yeah. Um, but what was very interesting was that there was a famous scene in the Joseph Smith papyri in which, I mean, basically, if somebody saw it today, they'd say it's an embalmment scene. You have a man lying on a bed. You have somebody else approaching him with a knife. Mm -hmm. that, somewhere, that's, that somebody probably has a jackal head. So it's probably the god Anubis. And you have the four canopic jars underneath. Right. Um, Joseph Smith interpreted this as the attempted sacrifice of Abraham. So he said that this is the priest coming to sacrifice Abraham and the jackal head was actually missing in a fragment of the papyrus. Uh, so, so he could basically restore a human head. 
Right. Uh, so he said that the person on the bed is Abraham and the canopic jars underneath are the gods of the Mesopotamians. Right. So there looked like there was some kind of connection, right? There was the name Abraham. You had this scene. These were texts from Egypt. And there were even texts which had some kind of historical relationship to the Joseph Smith papyri. They came from the same region. They were the same kind of group of sellers. And so this became an important argument formulated by somebody called John Gia, an Egyptologist who studied at uh, Chicago under Robert Rittner. So he noted that the name of Abraham appeared, that you had this Anubis embalming scene, which seemed to parallel the um, book of Abraham. Now, he was quite careful about his, his argument. But what he seemed to be saying was this showed that the Egyptians had older traditions of Abraham. They were interested in Abraham. And perhaps there was some kind of connection between the name of Abraham and this specific scene. And he also used it to argue that there were non-funerary texts being buried in these same tombs, which might, if you perhaps read into his lacuna, you might suggest that perhaps one of these was the real book of Abraham. Right. And how do you make that argument? Well, he argues that actually there were large portions of the Joseph, Pari, Joseph Smith papyri that were lost. So he says that from looking at the way in which it's rolled, it looks like these were originally much longer than the portions which survive today. So that's kind of how he tried to use the Greek magical papyri to make that argument, by saying that Abraham was of interest to Egyptian priests, that there's this connection, and therefore perhaps the Joseph Smith papyri could at some point have contained texts about Abraham. Of course, other people argued against this. There are a lot of two famous ex-Mormons called Gerald and Sandra Tanner who pointed out that the Greek-Egyptian magical papyri are very syncretistic. There's lots of Jewish elements like, you know, Israel and Moses that I mentioned earlier. And that these probably go back to, you know, the influence of Jewish people in Egypt in the Hellenistic and Roman period. But I think that John Gee and the work of other people um, following his, his lead kind of leaves this kind of apologetic space in which Mormons can still believe in these texts and in the inspired nature and the, and the possible reality of these texts as ancient documents. I love it. And what do you think, Korshi? Uh, what, what do I think about what? Well, do you think that do you think that the the text that Joseph Smith was reading was actually a, a book of Abraham that's from the lost now lost part of this papyrus roll, and that John uh, Gee is right? I mean, I think um, I think even John Gee would be very careful not to bell that out, perhaps as you've done. Um, I I probably would say no. Um, I think that probably he was he was riffing off the papyri that he had in front of them. And I think that for some Mormons, that, that works. They would say it's an inspired riffing. I would yeah. say it's perhaps a, a riffing which is inf informed by the kind of contemporary ideas and knowledge about Egypt, which is very biblical. You know, the idea of human sacrifice and so on is very biblical, and he's kind of reading that into the papyri. But yeah, I, I think it's just a fascinating example of the way in which ancient texts are used. You know, the, the Book of Mormon is an example of an ancient text, perhaps um, we could say a pseudepigraphon, um, which has been lost and suddenly discovered and contains all this ancient wisdom. And magical papyri are actually real examples of these things. They are actually ancient texts which were discovered and which do seem to contain this, what we could perhaps think of as ancient wisdom, which is very useful to people in various ways. All right, we're going to have to leave it there. So it's left to me just to say, Korshi Dosu, thank you very, very much for expounding the ancient wisdom for us. Thank you very much for letting me go on. <laughs> uh, it was my pleasure, mate. My pleasure. Stay esoteric. <laughs>